0: If you're just joining us this morning, you're right here at the end of uh, a several-month study of the book of Exodus. We've started in Exodus 1, and we've come up through Exodus 20 and the giving of the Ten Commandments. And we come now to the Tenth Commandment. Uh, And as as we've said each week, Exodus is a book about freedom. It's a book about God setting his people free, as he literally does as he takes his people out of Egypt and the land of slavery into freedom. And as he actually gives these Ten Commandments, which we've been looking at, that these also are a gift that's meant to lead people into freedom, into the freedom of what it means to be people in right relationship with God and right relationship with each other. And so we come to the close of that series this morning. Next week we'll start a new series for the fall on uh, learning to worship. We're going to talk about what it means to worship. And as a means of doing that, we're going to take uh, each week this fall one of the elements of worship that we do each Sunday morning in corporate worship. So if you were to open up your order of worship there, you'd see that there's a call to worship. And that we pray and that we confess our sin, that we sing, that we hear the word preached. So we're going to go through and talk about each of those elements over the course of this fall as a way for us to understand better what we're doing when we come here together. And that that might also inform the way we think about a life filled with worship both in contexts like this and lives of individual worship. So that's starting next week. Uh, but this morning again, Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 17. You'll find that on page 61, if you are happen to be using our pew Bible. And the 10th commandment. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the gift of the book of Exodus and a reminder of your um foundational care that your people would be set free and experience the freedom of relationship with you. Lord, we pray this morning that you would open our our eyes to your goodness, to your truth, that you might give us a better glimpse of the things that lurk in our own hearts and quickly give us an even brighter glimpse of your forgiveness and grace and goodness to us in Jesus. We are always people in need of you. And we have a Savior who is good and who is adequate and who holds us in his hands. So we look to you now in the name of that great Savior, Jesus. Amen. Exodus 20, verses 2 and 17. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. The word of the Lord is given for our good and his glory. If you remember a long time ago for many of us when you were in probably high school English at some point and you were learning, you are trying to learn or English teachers were trying to teach you how to write a, a decent paper. Okay, um, some of you are William Mary students. You're back in the thick of that, and maybe you remember that when when you're building your arguments in a paper, that that usually the best way to convey your point is to, to bring your 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 strongest argument last. Okay, that's the last paragraph. That's the last sub point in the paragraph. You try to try to hit with a, some sort of summary, most important thing that you want people to walk away with. Now, it's similar in the Ten Commandments. Now, there are, in one sense, only ten of them, and and they are all certainly vitally and equally important, but the Tenth Commandment is uniquely placed, uh, and it has a unique strength within the Ten Commandments that we're going to see this morning. Uh, The Ten Commandments end very deliberately with this, do not covet. Okay, so looking at coveting this morning, we're going to talk about what it is, what it means to covet, and what coveting does how we can be set free from a life of coveting. Okay, so coveting, what it is, what it does, and how we can be set free from it. Okay, so first, coveting, what is it? I mean, here it is, verse 17. You shall not covet, and it gives a list of things that you're not to covet. What is it? Well, there are a lot of good definitions maybe we should give, and let me give you uh, my sort of loose definition of this. Coveting is desire gone wrong. It's desire gone wrong. Okay, now that's, uh, both parts of that are important in this definition because the, the problem with covenanting is not desire itself. Okay, it's not as if somehow these desires that we have, uh, for, even for things in the most uh, material sense, which we'll get to in a minute too, it's not as if our desires in and of themselves are somehow ungodly, as if we're people who should have no desires, who should strive to be freed from all earthly desires. So if we should somehow cut ourselves off from the world around us, the problem is not our desires, it's desires gone wrong. And there are two ways they can go wrong, at least. Uh, They can go wrong by, uh, our desires can go wrong by being aimed at the wrong object. Okay, you can want something that in and of itself is sinful, that in and of itself is out of bounds for us. Okay, it goes on and talks about do not covet your neighbor's wife. Okay, adultery, one of the Ten Commandments itself, in and of itself, it's a, it's a breaking of a commandment. It's a breaking of a certain, uh, a certain context of sexual relationship. So in and of itself, it's possible to desire something that's wrong. And we do that a lot. But here's the second thing, and this, this also affects us, not only uh, desiring something that's the wrong object. Desire can go wrong when we are desiring something that in, its, in and of itself may be acceptable and even good. But it becomes an all-controlling, all-consuming desire. You can want something good in such a way that it absolutely comes to dominate and consume your life. And that too is coveting. Uh, very common for us. Coveting is what says, "If I had that, then I would be happy, complete, satisfied, full. If only I had that." And it's hard for us to even get a hold of our own coveting. Sometimes I think it's it's like the you know proverbial fish. Trying to describe water, it's like trying to describe the air that we breathe because it is so much a part of our lives and certainly so much a part of the world around us. Uh, could be, could be stuff. Okay, what are you coveting? Could be stuff. Um, I don't know what it is for you. Uh, for me, my, my most recent stuff are iPhones. Okay, now. Um, this summer, uh, back in June, I went to uh, our denomination's general assembly where uh, pastors and ruling elders from churches across the country and across our denomination get together to do the business of the church at large and to see old friends and renew acquaintances. And in many ways, it's a, uh, a great time. And you would think it might be a fairly safe place to be, but not for me. Because as I saw you know, my friends from other places in the country, friends from other churches, and I saw people time and again pull out their iPhones I thought, um, how much richer would my life be if I had an iPhone? (laughs) Not only that, how much richer would my ministry be if I had an iPhone? Now, don't get me wrong. I own a cell phone, which is part of what an iPhone can do. And everywhere I go, I carry this bag with my laptop in it, which does everything that an iPhone can do. But it would be so much better if it were just that much smaller, right? Stuff. Uh, You know, maybe for you it's not an iPhone. What about for you? Some of you just... Moving into your dorm room and and maybe you're meeting your, uh, your new roommate or somebody on your hall and you find that this new person you live with or this new friend is wealthier than any of the friends you had back home. And you look at the stuff they brought, the sheer quantity of stuff they brought and the sheer quality of stuff they brought and you just think, if I just had that. Maybe for you, it's maybe you and your roommate have some of the same stuff, but theirs is just one notch better than yours, you know? Just a slightly better iPod, and just a slightly flatter flat-screen TV, or <laughs> a slightly colder refrigerator, whatever it is. Um, or maybe it's just fill in the blank. What is it for you? The the stuff, uh, the car that's a little bit nicer, even though it's yours yours runs fine. But I mean, it is four years old, and It's fiscally responsible to trade in your car every four years, right? Or Or your house or your second house or your retirement account. Maybe it's stuff that gets us. Or maybe it's a relationship. A spouse or the spouse that you don't have or the girlfriend or boyfriend or maybe what you so desperately want right now is just a friend. You know, again, coming back to college or coming for the first time. Friends in high school and now you're back to square one and you've been here a few days and you're thinking, you know, if I just had just one friend, then I wouldn't feel so exposed. Then I wouldn't feel so nervous when the weekend comes because at least I'd have one person that I knew that I could hang out with. If only I had that. Or maybe it's not your stuff or relationship, maybe status or the life someone else has. We're always looking over the shoulder of someone else saying, if I had that, then I'd be complete. Maybe for some of us, maybe it's uh, maybe it's your body, right? If I just had five pounds less or five pounds more, or if uh, I was just a little bit better looking, had a little bit better complexion, you go to the gym and you think, if I could just be a little more like that person, then I would be complete. Now the interesting thing about this tenth commandment, coveting, is it is in fact the first step in breaking all nine of the other commandments. Okay, because uh, you know adultery, stealing. You know each week as we talked about these, these are external actions. Now we've gone on and talked about the heart that fuels them. But here in the tenth commandment, we get to the foundation of that. Tenth commandment deals directly with what is going on in our hearts that leads us into these other, all these other sins. And in many ways, you could probably trace anything that goes wrong in your life in the sense of you deviating from God's plan for your life, of you shaking your fist at Him, of any sin you find yourself in. At the heart of it may well be that there's some aspect of coveting that is going on, uh, and maybe sometimes we don't even know it. It is the sin behind the other sins. You know? Do not covet your neighbor's wife. And if you do, it's going to lead you straight into breaking the seventh commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's stuff. And if you do, it's going to lead you right into breaking the eighth commandment. Do not steal. Coveting goes right for our heart, Not just what we do and don't do on the outside, but it's the very fountain from which all of our outward actions and sins spring forth. Another way of saying it is coveting is the engine that powers all our other sins. Okay, it's right there with what Jesus says about sin that it flows from our hearts. And coveting is the inclination of our hearts gone wrong. And so you see we're we're caught, aren't we? I mean, if this really goes down to the core of who we are and how our hearts work and what we think and what we do, because our li- our lives are Swimming in a sea of desires for the wrong things and desires for good things that have taken us over, that have overflowed the banks. Let me give you an example of the original story of coveting. Um, It goes back to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. And uh, at the beginning of that chapter, it picks up with the serpent coming into the garden, into this place where everything is perfect. Mankind made as it should be, husband and wife relating rightly and right relationship with each other, with God, with creation. then the serpent comes in and says to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Adam and Eve, in this perfect place, in this perfect relationship, given everything they need, access to everything they could possibly need, and everything they could possibly desire except for one thing. God says, "This one tree, don't don't eat of that. Stay away from that one." And the servant comes in and speaks to Eve, and what does he do? He appeals to her desire, to her senses. You know, it was good to look at. And to her hunger, it was good for food. And to her pride, she saw it was desirable to make one wise. She listened to the wrong voice, the one that said, If you take this, contrary to what God has told you, if you take this, then you will finally be full. And everything plunged into ruin. Paul goes on in Colossians. He's. He puts another spin on coveting. He, he says it's so serious that coveting is in fact, it's in fact a form of idolatry. Listen to this. He says to these believers, You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. Some translations you might have would say greed. Same idea. That it is idolatry. Idolatry, putting anything at the center of your life other than God. Constructing a life, constructing an identity, constructing a life mission of anything other than service to a joyful relationship with the one true God. Putting anything else at the very center of Idolatry means that something other than God has your heart. As Paul points out, covetousness is a form of idolatry. Why? Because it has always got its eye on that thing other than God that says, that is what is going to give me life. Okay, coveting, that's what it is. What does it do? Uh, Three things we're going to look at. One, it breaks down community, it destroys community. Okay, these Ten Commandments are given to God's new redeemed people as they're preparing to go into the promised land to be God's people in God's place. And he says, this is what it means to love me and for you to now love each other. This is what a solid community is going to be based on as my people. So the breaking of any of these commandments... Is a violation against God, but it also destroys community. And that's exactly what happens when coveting grabs hold of our hearts. Um, because notice the way it's phrased here in verse 17. Every, this whole commandment, each part of it is phrased specifically in a neighbor-related way. right? Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's servants, your neighbor's ox. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. Camper and I were talking this week, and he told me about a quote he'd heard in a talk once that really struck me. And he said, comparison is the enemy of joy. Comparison is the enemy of joy. That there's something that can break into our lives and into our communities when we begin to covet that destroys joy and destroys relationship with each other. Because what happens when we covet? When we desire our neighbor's wife or his employee or his ox or his car or whatever... Strife, tension, breakdown. I mean, you can imagine this in a marriage. When your neighbor, which the Bible defines as anyone you come in contact with, when your neighbor begins to pay a little too much attention to your spouse, laughs at all the jokes, ignores you, focuses on them. What's going to happen? There's going to be a breakdown in community. What's going to happen when you begin to covet your neighbor's stuff? You're going to begin to resent them. You're going to, be, be to begin to resent that they have that and you don't. What happens when you begin to resent the success of your coworker at the office? There's going to be strife. There's going to be breakdown. What happens when there are rivalries in your home? When there's dissension on your hall at school? Covetousness brings a breakdown in community. Now, the second thing it does, it blinds us To the goodness of God. Our covetousness, it blinds us to God's goodness being poured out in our life. One commentator says this, Envy blinds a person to everything he has and allows him to see only the thing he does not have. Covetousness says this, My life is defined by what I do not have right now. What happens when our lives become so narrowed down to that, to the thing we do not have? We're going to become blind to the goodness of God. It's what happened to Adam and Eve in the middle of listening to the lie of the serpent. This whole garden I have given you, and yet all you can think of is this one tree that you are not supposed to eat of. And it blinds them to a relationship with God himself that is then fractured when they act on their covetousness. Because at the end of the day, they said... God is holding out on us. He's holding out on us. Sure, the rest of the garden, He's holding out on us because I don't have that thing or that relationship. It's like you see horses um, being drawn in a carriage and the blinders they have on the sides of either eye would to block out all the all the peripheral vision. You know what it's like when you begin to covet and you think, All I can see is this one thing. I remember when I was in junior high, I went going on a trip to Colorado and hiking in the the Rocky Mountains. And it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. But you know what it's like in the middle of a hike when it's so easy and you're tired to stare down at your feet and all you see are the rocks there right in front of you. And you don't look up and you don't see the magnificence. Of the view all around you. And that's what covetousness does. covetousness does to us. It blinds us to the beauty and the goodness of God all around us. And that's just another way of saying, third thing it does to us, it leads us back into slavery. We've been talking in, all through Exodus here that it is about God setting his people free. And if you look back at verse 2 that we've read at the beginning of every one of these commandments, the prologue to the commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, I have rescued you so that you would be free. God says, that is what I want for you, freedom. Freedom to be in right relationship with me, freedom to be in relationship with each other. And when our hearts are captured by covetousness, it leads us straight back into slavery. Think about it this way. Let's just take one example. Um, your, your covetousness over someone else's body. okay? Self-image, body image, right? Of course, it's right to take care of our bodies, to exercise, to care for them. But what happens when a, when a right care for your body becomes coveting? There becomes a drivenness, this obsessive care over what you eat and what you don't eat becomes a fixation on your appearance and your exercise, this constant comparison. I'm not as thin as he is. I'm not as good-looking. I'm not as beautiful. I'm not as desirable. And that's frankly why some of us, uh, though we wouldn't admit it, secretly loathe some of our friends. Not to mention the people we just see on campus or in our neighborhood or maybe in our church. Not only do I want something, I resent the person who has it. And you can fill in any other coveting of ours, any coveting that you have. It's not just enough that you have it. You want that other person at some level not to have it either. And when they have it and you don't, it just gets under your skin. And it gets under my skin because we have a heart that set ourselves on things that would ultimately destroy us. Okay, coveting, that's what it is and that's what it does. And it's not good for us. And it's not good for our communities. So it brings up the question, how are we going to be set free? If that's what it is, if it really matters, if it's causing that kind of destruction, how are we going to be set free? Well, here's what Scripture, I think, offers to us. Coveting is the route back to slavery, back to captivity, and in the way from the freedom of living joyfully in God's presence, well, the road, the route back to freedom, runs right along the path of contentment. Contentment. Covetousness is this poison that infects us and affects our relationships with other people, grabs hold of our hearts. What is the antidote to that? What's going to work against the power of covetousness in our life? A life of contentment. That's what the Bible offers to us. Contentment is a life, uh, the posture of a life lived without the grasping of covetousness, without its narrowed vision of the world without its deep dissatisfaction with the shape of God's provision and love at work in our lives. Contentment, that's what it points us to. Listen to these verses from Philippians chapter 4 and Paul speaking in the midst of uh, and out of the experience of both uh, hard experiences and the Lord's goodness and, uh, and comfort to him as well. Philippians 4, he says, Not that I am now speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content." I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I've learned the secret. Here's what he says. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What does Paul say? I've learned to be content. We see a few things about contentment here. Paul shows us clearly in his view of contentment, it is a quality of life that is untethered to the actual situations of our life. That's what Paul says, right? He says, in plenty or in want. You know, he goes on and tells stories about, you know, being shipwrecked, being hauled uh, around half the known world as a prisoner, abounding in being in situations of want. He says, I, f- I found the secret in all of these things, and it does not have to do with the circumstances that I happen to be in. It is untethered from the situations of our life. We could add, that, we could add anything uh, in anything of our own here, in our own battles with covetousness, when I am well paid and when I am not, when the stocks are up and when the stock market crashes, when my party is in the White House and when my party is not, When I'm healthy and when I'm sick. When my kids are loving, obedient, and thankful and when they aren't. When my spouse is beautiful, gracious, self-sacrificing and when he or she isn't. When I have a date and when I don't. When I make the A and when I make the C. When my boss notices and when he doesn't. When I get my way and when I don't. When I'm succeeding and when I'm not. When my friend or rival is succeeding and I'm not. Paul tells us that contentment is untethered to the situations and circumstances. Or better yet, contentment is not undermined by the circumstances of our life. Now, you know, don't mishear me and don't mishear Paul. Paul doesn't say, I can do all things through him who anesthetizes me to the realities of the world You know, he who numbs my desires. He who helps me to check out. It's not what he says. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What do we need that strength for from Jesus? To trust him. To rest in his provision. To find our joy in his provision and peace for us. Even when he doesn't seem to be giving us what we think we need most in that that particular moment. Because remember that coveting says, I must have that to fill me up, to give me peace, to give me my life. I must have it. But contentment looks to Jesus. And it says, I must have him, the one who offers to fill me up, to give me peace, to give me life. I must have a relationship with God that has been healed, that's been forgiven, that's been established on something more solid than on my own goodness says, I need a relationship with God that's more stable than the fluctuations of my friendships and relationships and the stock market and my family, my financial security. I need a life rooted not in my immediate circumstances, but in an in and unending relationship. I need a life rooted in Jesus. When he says this, he knows that everything else can and will fail you. Do you know that? All those things that we are coveting will fail us. The pursuit of the perfect friend, the perfect spouse, one day that person will die, and so will you. The perfect child, what happens when they fail you? Your money, what happens when it runs out? What happens when your investment's sour? What happens when it's stolen or mismanaged? What then? Your position, your fame, what happens when your company fails? When your rivals oust you, when you're sidelined for a promotion? What happens when your glory fades and you're replaced by the next gifted or attractive or ambitious person? What happens then? What happens when you step off the medal stand and it's closing ceremonies and everybody goes home and your name is forgotten once again? See, the thing about coveting says, I need that to fill me up. And here's what coveting gets right. You do need something. You do need a life founded on something. Your coveting lies to you, but the gospel speaks the truth to us. That we do need something, something to give our life to, something that can guarantee our joy, something that it is precious and valuable and that we cannot live without. But it is not your neighbor's house or his spouse or his employee or his ox or his job. It's not your grades. Sorry. It's not your promotion. It's not stellar kids. It's not your intelligence. It's not money. It's not financial security. It's not a little bit more. It is, though, a relationship with God through Jesus by his spirit. It's a relationship that's made right with God through the forgiveness that only Jesus brings. A, right, a relationship made right finally and fully with our Heavenly Father. At the heart of our need is a relationship, and it is with this one Jesus. This Jesus who said in John chapter 10, I have come that my people may have life, have it to the full. He says, that is what I want for my people. That is what I want for you. A life freed from coveting that you might have real life, an unending life, and a life that's not built on the things that you acquire, that's not a built on your achievements, that's not a built on... Um, how your marriage or your friendship or your family or the lack thereof is going at any given moment. A life that is built on Jesus. That's what Paul cries out for. He might rest on the one who strengthens him. All right, let me just say this in conclusion. Another quote from a commentator. Thus we can live in the bodies that we have. We can live in the houses we own with the husband or wife God has given us, with the jobs that we have. There's no objection against striving for a better position, but there's an unchristian chasing after affluence, the kind that leaves us constantly looking with a jaundiced eye at what someone else has more than we have. In contrast to this, the starting point of the Tenth Commandment is very simply this. Your own house is the best one for you. In your own job lies the most fruitful development of your abilities, even though your house may be smaller than your neighbors, though your wife may be less attractive than other women, though your job may rank lower on the scale of values than those of your friends and acquaintances, and so on. In other words, in Jesus we can be people who are content as we look beyond the details of our situation to Jesus, the one who holds us in his hand, the one who is committed to taking care of you, the one who will never let you go, and the one who promises one day to bring you home. That Jesus holding you, that relationship holding you, is the one door out of a life of covetousness and control and fear into a life of freedom. It comes to us in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that You would shine brightly for us this week. And would You shine more brightly for us And all the trinkets that we have a tendency to focus on. All the things around us that so capture and catch our attention. Lord, would we find our life in you? And from there, be able to simply be thankful and content. To be able to say thank you for the many good gifts you bring to us. To be able to say, I trust you in the middle of our very real hardships. Would you guard hearts and our lives from the poison of covetousness. As we seek to follow you and be faithful in the callings you've given to us, would you give us a deep contentment, never apathy, never a lack of care, but a solid and unshakable trust that you are God, that you sit on your throne even now, and that our lives are held securely in your hand, your hand, the one who loves us, who has redeemed us, who has come to bring us life. Would we find that life in you even now? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.